in a strange sort of way, I enjoy walking through country cemeteries, especially those that are adjacent to old country churches. I read the names on the headstones and I consider the lives of the people that they represent, the tender words like loving father, dedicated mother, servant of God, and I'm always drawn to the dates. Some of the people in these old cemeteries live decades, and some of them live days. If cemeteries were all that we knew, then the victory of sin and death would appear pretty certain. After all, we're all going to die one day, aren't we? But the event that we celebrate this morning assures us that the victory of sin and death is only temporary. It's been well said that while graveyards remind us of the brevity of life, the resurrection reminds us of the brevity of death. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives us confidence with regard to the future. Jesus crossed over to death and came back. No one else has ever done that. Not in the way that some have asserted, not, not in 90 minutes, and he didn't have a near-death experience. He died, was buried, walked out of that tomb, never to die again. In his first letter to the Corinthians, the apostle Paul wrote in chapter 15, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as if it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For Paul says, I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove in vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether it was then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believe. The events that are associated with Resurrection Sunday are among the most difficult in all the Gospels to harmonize. All four Gospel writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recorded information about what happened on that day. All four did so from a different perspective. None of the writers sat down to write a complete description of everything that happened that day. That was not their purpose. But with that in mind, let's see if we can't reconstruct what happened immediately after the resurrection. Because we don't really have any information about the resurrection itself. It's just an event. It happened. All the information in the gospel records are what happened immediately after the resurrection. And that's extremely significant. So after Jesus was resurrected, right before dawn or... Right at that time on that Sunday morning, there was an earthquake, according to Matthew chapter 28, verse 2, and the stone was rolled away by an angel, not to let Jesus out, but to let everybody else in. The guards were so afraid, Matthew 28 also records, that they became like dead men. 
they then leave and they go report to the Jewish authorities. And it's an interesting, they report to them first. But they report to the Jewish leadership as to what happened. Now some take that as an implication that this was a Jewish guard guarding the tomb of Jesus. Rather than part of the Roman guard that was stationed in Jerusalem. But it's far more likely that they were Roman guards. Because we'll see later that they were going to be answerable to Pilate. And they had to have a story to tell because if they just said the prisoner escaped or Jesus went and walked through the, the rock and he's out of there now, these Roman guards would have been executed. You know that. They were guarding the tomb of Jesus as if he was a prisoner that day. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them, His disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, Pilate, we will appease him and we will make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews even into this day. In other words, the day of the writing of the Gospel of Matthew. Grave robbery in the ancient world was common. In fact, that it, was, it was so common that during the reign of Emperor Claudius, it became a, a crime punishable by death to rob a grave. So this was a very serious accusation that they were making against the disciples of Jesus. And then the next event that happens is a group of women make their way to the tomb of Jesus. Mary of Magdala, we know her as Mary Magdalene, arrives before the other women. Why? We don't know. Was she younger? Was she faster? Was she more enthusiastic? I don't know, but she arrives first. When she gets there, she finds the stone already rolled away and runs to tell Peter and John. It's possible that the other women that were in that group arrive at about the same time that she's leaving. She uses the plural we in John chapter 20, verse 2. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they've laid him. We don't know where they've laid him. In other words, the whole group. The other women, Mary, the mother of James, Salome, and Joanna. Now, Joanna and Salome might be the same person. It's hard to tell. They arrive at the tomb. Again, Matthew chapter 28 and Mark 16, Luke 24, all record this visit. They enter the empty tomb and encounter an angel who tells them that Jesus has risen and that they should go and tell the disciples. Now, that's Matthew's account. Luke mentions a second angel having been there. Matthew chapter 28, verse 5, But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen. As he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And indeed, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I've told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with great fear and joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. Peter and John, after getting the great news from Mary of Magdala, of course, they were still wondering what in the world's going on here, is totally outside their grid, even though Jesus had told them this was going to happen. It's totally outside their grid, so they're freaking out right now. And they run to the tomb with John outrunning Peter 
and arriving at the tomb first. When John gets there, he finds the tomb empty. And then when Peter gets there, as he always does, impulsive Peter brushes right by John and moves into the tomb itself. They see Jesus' clothes laying nearby, folded neatly, with the headpiece folded separately from the other clothes. You wonder why an item like that is recorded in the gospel records. Why would it be recorded that his clothes were still there? And not only were they still there, they weren't crumpled up. They were neatly folded up, and the headpiece was folded separately. Now, I've never robbed a grave, and I have to say I've never known a grave robber. I know people that worked at cemeteries that tell me there are such things as grave robbers, and they have to watch out for that. But I would assume if you're going to rob a grave and there are two Roman guards there watching you, you're going to get the body and you're going to run fast. You're not going to take the time, if you're a grave robber, to unwrap the almost mummified Jesus at this point, to unwrap his body and neatly fold the cloths. You see, this is a refutation of the whole idea that his body was stolen. Let me give you another refutation to that silly idea if those guards, I don't know how much money they got for saying that the disciples stole the body, but I hope it was a lot. I hope it was enough to get them out of town really fast because they would have been executed for losing the body of Jesus. No, the body wasn't stolen. That's one of the most that's the silliest idea that has ever come down the pipe. But we see where it started from. And in fact, I hate to tell you, but that rumor comes down even to today that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. So, and you say, well, why in the world would they do something like that? It seems kind of odd. And you know the answer that people come up with today? They stole the body of Jesus so they could start this new religion and that they could be the chief architects of this new religion. Oh, isn't that a great idea? No, it's a terrible idea. They just saw what happened to Jesus and he was executed. Up until this time, they've been hiding in, locked, in a room with locked doors. They're scared to death. They don't want to start a new religion. In fact, they never thought of Christianity as new religion anyway. They thought of it as a continuation of, of the Jewish faith. That's absolutely silly. In fact, it's the boldness of the, of the disciples, later the apostles, after the resurrection of Jesus that gives us the confidence that he really was raised from the dead. Chuck Colson of the prison ministry fame, and if you go back further than that of the Nixon administration, I think he was one of the first people to go to prison because of the Watergate scandal. And he will tell you, I've spoken to, uh, to Mr. Colson, I, I can't say that I know him, but I've spoken to him, and he will say that the best thing that ever happened to him was going to prison, because that's where he got the gospel. He received Jesus Christ actually in his driveway on the way for the federal marshals to take him to prison. Chuck Colson said in that whole Watergate scandal thing, he said there was about five or six of us that really knew what was going on. Five or six of us. And if all of us would have kept our mouths shut, we got together, they got together one day and said, listen, we're the only people in the world that know what happened here. And if we can just keep our mouths shut, then nobody can ever go to prison. And it wasn't 48 hours that Dean Bolted told the press and it was all over with. And Colson said, listen, I know people that will die for what they believe to be the truth. But I know no one that's going to die for what they know to be a lie. The disciples, all of them died. And they didn't die for what they knew to be a lie. They died because they had seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. They knew that that tomb was empty. Well, after that happens, Mary Magdalene arrives at the tomb. Peter and John left. She's weeping at this time. Two angels were present inside the tomb at that point, and they ask her, Woman, why are you weeping? She responds, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. 
You see, this is still outside of her grid too. And don't forget the fact that she's weeping. That's germane to this portion of the narrative. And then she turns around and she sees a man that she assumes is the gardener. But it's really the resurrected Jesus. And people wonder, why didn't she recognize him? Well, first of all, it's outside of her grid. She's not expecting Jesus to be there. And on top of that, she's weeping. So it's no wonder to me that she didn't recognize him. At first, she will. But Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Thinking that he's the gardener, she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me. Tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus responds to her with one word, Mary, just her name. She immediately recognized his voice as his sheep will. It says, Rabboni. He tells her not to cling to him. But she gives him a message for the disciples. And then Mary Magdalene leaves to tell the disciples again what has happened. What that one word must have meant to her. I was out at a restaurant last night and people were talking every which way. My little grandson was there with me and my daughter and son-in-law, wife and son. And, and I remember listening to all the various voices that were there. All the noise, the background noise. And then all of a sudden I heard my little grandson's voice just say something. He's not quite speaking in sentences yet, but he, he says, Pops, that's me. That's the most important thing, right? I'm already saving up for the car. <laughs> I don't know where he was when he said this one or, one or two syllable thing, but it was, it was somewhere in the mixture of all this other noise, but I picked it out. I know that voice. I was in tune to that voice. And that's Mary of Magdala. All he said was her name, Mary. And immediately she knew who it was. Then Jesus appears to the other women who had gone from the tomb. Remember, there's, it's, they're, they're coming and going almost like a Keystone Cops film in this situation. They're coming and going and then Jesus appears to the other women who were on their way to report to the disciples and he gives them a message for the disciples. It's recorded also in Matthew 28. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by his feet and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Sometime that afternoon, all that happened in the morning. Sometime that afternoon, there were two other appearances of Jesus. One was to Peter, and one was to James, the half-brother of Jesus. The specifics of these conversations aren't recorded. But it's not unreasonable to at least conclude with Peter's conversation that that conversation included a discussion of Peter's denials. You see, this is the first time they've met since then. We don't know, but I, I feel fairly certain that Peter would have confessed at that point. I feel fairly certain that was a tender conversation as well, because you remember, from an earthly perspective, Peter might have been Jesus' best friend on earth. He certainly was one of the closest people to him. And he had denied him three times. And remember, the last time they had made eye contact was in that courtyard 
where Jesus is being brutalized, and Peter's denying him on the other side of the courtyard. And on the third denial, when the cock crowed the third time, Jesus just looked at him with those everlasting eyes, and Peter went out and wept. Well, this is the first meeting since then. So I have no doubt that Peter confessed, and I have no doubt that Jesus forgave. You know, it's never mentioned again. Never mentioned again. So many times we want to hold something against people. But once Jesus forgives, he forgives. And we would do well to do the same thing. Late in the afternoon, much later, Jesus then appears to two unnamed disciples on the road to Emmaus. Some people think, and I don't know how much justification there is for it, but I just throw it out to you. Some people think that one of the disciples might have been Luke on the road to Emmaus. We don't know that. But, oh, that discussion must have been phenomenal. Jesus walked those disciples through himself all throughout the Old Testament. He showed them himself in the Old Testament. I would like to have a tape of that sermon. That must have been phenomenal. And then in the evening, Jesus appears to the disciples, minus Thomas. That's recorded in Luke chapter 24. So that's a brief reconstruction of the events of that Sunday after the resurrection. But is there any significance to the resurrection? Of course there is. The strongest possible yes I could give you that there is significance to the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an essential event in the Christian faith. Without it, there is no Christianity. In other words, if you just accepted the crucifixion of Christ but denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is not Christianity. And I say that in the strongest possible way. Jesus' resurrection is an indispensable evidence of the value of his death on the cross. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul wrote, If Christ has not been risen, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. And then later in the same chapter, If Christ has not been risen, your faith is worthless. And you're still dead in your sins. I don't want a worthless faith. I'm not up here just biding my time. It would be a waste of my time if Jesus Christ was not resurrected. It would have been a waste of Paul's life if Jesus would not have been resurrected. You realize the hardships that he suffered, the beatings that he took on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ? Had he not seen the resurrected Christ, he would have never done that. If it wasn't for Jesus' resurrection, we'd still be dead in our sins. Now, if you were here last week, as we studied the crucifixion itself, you know that Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He had completed the mission. And in a broader theological context, all the work of salvation was finished on the cross. So you might wonder, what did Paul mean over in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said, if Christ wasn't resurrected, you're still dead in your sins? Well, the work of Christ was finished on the cross, but the confirmation that Jesus is who he said he was, was manifested in the resurrection. We don't worship a dead prophet. We worship a risen Savior. Big difference. Jesus had said that he would die and be resurrected three days later. If it hadn't come to pass, then he would have been proven an imposter. A messianic imposter, and there were many in those days. The historian Josephus says that there were between 20 and 30 people in Israel at that time who claimed to be the Messiah. Did you know that? They could count. They had read Daniel. They knew how many weeks it was supposed to be before Messiah would come. And there were a lot of imposters. How do we tell the imposters back then from the real Messiah back then? How do we tell the imposters today from the Messiah today? 
Jesus made the boldest claim anybody's ever made. They're going to crucify me, and three days later, I'm going to come back to life. And he did it. And with all due respect, he wasn't in the grave, or he wasn't on an operating table and was out of it for 90 minutes, with flatline for 90 minutes. He was flatlined for three days. There's no doubt that he was dead. A few years ago, I was preparing to do a funeral for the daughter of a very close friend. And as I was sitting in my office, I I knew this family well, still know them well. And I knew how much pain they were in by this daughter's death. She was still a relatively young person. And as I was sitting there in the quiet of my office, I was thinking, I need, what, what can I say? This is, seems to be such a tragic situation. What can I say to them to give them hope today and encouragement rather than the despair that I'm sure they all felt watching their beloved pass in a very painful manner? And all of a sudden, it wasn't like a voice spoke to me, but in my soul, it's the resurrection, dummy. That's what gives us hope. If all that would have happened was that Jesus would have died this sacrificial death, we could say a lot of people have died sacrificial deaths. A lot of servicemen and women die sacrificial deaths. But Jesus died and came back to life, and he was seen and felt and touched and heard. Physical resurrection. That's what gives me confidence as a Christian. I'll tell you right now. If it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I wouldn't be here. And if it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I'd advise you to do something else today. Go get the barbecue ready for the masters later on this afternoon. Sit down and watch Phil win, if you can. (laughs) I don't know. This is not a small thing. Lewis Perry Chafer, the great theologian of a couple generations ago, summarized the importance of the resurrection in these words. His resurrection is vitally related to ages past, to the fulfillment of all prophecy to the values of his death, to the church, to Israel, to creation, to the purposes of God and grace, which reach beyond the ages to come, and to the eternal glory of God. Fulfillment of the eternal purposes related to all these events was dependent upon the coming forth of the Son of God from that tomb. He arose from the dead, and the greatness of that event is indicated by the importance of the place in Christian doctrine. Had Christ not arisen... He by whom all things were created, that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. He for whom all things were created, who is before all things, and by by whom all things consist, every divine purpose and blessing would have failed. Yea, the very universe and the throne of God would have dissolved and would have been dismissed forever. All life, light, and hope would have ceased Death, darkness, and despair would have reigned. Though the spiritual powers of darkness might have continued, the last hope for a ruined world would have been banished eternally. He goes on to say, It's impossible for the mind to grasp the mighty issues which were at stake the moment which he came forth from the tomb. At no moment in time, however, were these great issues in jeopardy. The consummation of his resurrection was sure. For omnipotent power was engaged to bring it to pass. Every feature of the Christian's salvation, position, and hope was dependent upon the resurrection of the Lord. 
The Bible presents Jesus as rising physically from the grave. And this is an important aspect of Christian doctrine. He rose physically from the grave. We believe in the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a well-known resurrection hymn that concludes, You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. That hymn is one of my favorites. And we've sung it many times. But i got to admit to you, I don't care for that final line. And I'll tell you why. Marcus Borg, who's a retired professor at Oregon State University, Oxford trained, a fellow of the Jesus Seminar. Professor Borg, in classroom and in speaking engagements all around the world, denies that Jesus rose bodily. In fact, he denies almost all of the miraculous in Jesus' life. Borg believes that Jesus lives, but not physically. He, and I'm going to quote him, he lives in the hearts of his followers. He goes on to say this, and I quote again, The truth of Easter has nothing to do with whether the tomb was empty on a particular morning 2,000 years ago, or whether anything happened to the corpse of Jesus. I see the truth of Easter as grounded in the Christian experience of Jesus as a living spiritual reality of the present. He says, I think the resurrection of Jesus really happened, but I have no idea if it involves anything happening to his corpse. And therefore, I have no idea whether it involves an empty tomb. And then for me, he says, that doesn't matter. Because the central meaning of the Easter experience, or the resurrection of Jesus, is that his followers continue to experience him as a living reality. And I've seen him say this, as a living reality. A presence after his death. He says, and I conclude, so I would have no problem whatsoever with archaeologists finding the corpse of Jesus. For me, he says, that would not be a discrediting of the Christian faith or of the Christian tradition. Oh, yes, it would. On the contrary, Dr. Borg, it would. The, the empty tomb is essential in Christianity. Without it, there is no Christianity. My father passed away about a year and a half ago. And I still miss him, and I, and I think of him a lot. Before he passed away, we had some really nice conversations about death and eternity and what was going to happen. But had in those conversations, I would have told him, hey, listen, a year and a half from now, don't worry, you're still going to live in my heart. I'm going to have sweet memories of you. It's going to be special for me to recall who you were. How much comfort do you think that would have really given him when he's about to pass between life and death? Don't worry, I'm going to remember you. I'm going to have these sweet, fun, this is how I know you're living, because you live within my heart, Dad. And again, I love that hymn, and I'm not trying to offend you. I like it as much as you do, but I hate that last line, because that's not how I know he lives. I know he lives because the tomb is empty, not just because I feel it. What happens if you quit feeling it? Does that mean he's not living anymore? No, there's reasonable, rational evidence that a reasonable, rational person would look at. And say, no, I know he lives. That's why I can live. And that's why I know when I face my own departure. And I hope that's not anytime soon. I mean, it's not like I'm looking to, to accelerate it. But when I face it, I want to face it with confidence because I know Jesus died and he came back. That's what gives me confidence. And that's what gives, should give you confidence, provided you're rightly related to him. I'll talk about that in a moment. The essential aspect 
is the empty tomb. Without it, there's no Christianity. Jesus was resurrected physically as opposed to just a spiritual resurrection in the minds and the hearts of his disciples. You know, people like Marcus Borger are all over the place. They're in almost every university in this country, and they have as their stated purpose to destroy the faith of those that attend those classes. Marcus Borg was in the religion department at Oregon State. How'd you like to have, how'd you like to be a parent out in Oregon and send your child to Oregon State? Oh, you're taking religion this semester. That's great. And then Marcus Borg's the professor, or at the University of North Carolina, Bart Urban's the professor. Just because they're teaching religion doesn't mean they're a Christian. And Marcus Borg's brand of Christianity, I hate to say it, is not Christianity. It's not. The essential the empty tomb is essential. The body that came out of the tomb is the same body that went into it. Now, there's one difference. We're going to have a body like Jesus' someday. There's one difference in Jesus' body and our body. Now, they may look a little different. I'm not saying that. But there's one essential difference, and that is that Jesus' body has scars. And ours won't. And those scars, I believe, are a permanent memorial as to what he did to get us there. And every time we see Jesus in eternity, and we look down at those nail scarred hands and feet, we'll remember why we're there. We're not worthy of having a resurrection body with scars. Even the greatest of all the martyrs is not worthy of having a resurrection body with scars. The tomb was empty. Jesus was touched and handled. You don't touch and handle a spirit. You saw that the women who came back from the tomb fell at his feet, touched his feet, and worshipped him. Jesus asserted himself that his resurrected body had flesh and bones. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones, he says in Luke chapter 24, verse 39. Jesus' flesh wasn't sinful flesh, so it's not sarks as the way Paul uses the term. But he died and he rose again in actual human flesh. Which tells me, and I don't know actually how it's going to happen, but we're going to be transformed that way too. The body that you sit in here today is going to be perfected and transformed. But it's still going to be a flesh and bones body. This is an interesting one for me. Jesus ate on at least four occasions in his resurrection body, which tells me it wasn't just, we don't eat just simply for nourishment. We do eat for pleasure, no matter what they tell you at Weight Watchers. <laughs> I don't know how all that's going to work either. Don't ask me. I have no idea. Jesus' resurrection body is recognizable. Now Mary Magdala didn't recognize him at first. The, dis the disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him at first. It wasn't in their grid. Plus, he was hiding himself. He was hiding his identity from the disciples on the road to Emmaus. We already talked about why Mary might not have recognized him. But the rest of the time, his body is recognizable. And his body could be seen and it could be heard. He had a physical resurrection, just like you and I are going to have a physical resurrection. One day, we're promised a body just like Jesus. And it's going to be the body that you're sitting in today. It'll be perfected. You know, that you'll be the right age. Some people have asked, is our, is our resurrection body going to be 33 years old? Because that's how Jesus' was. I don't know. It's first, I know it's not going to be 33 years old, but it might have the appearance of a 33-year-old. I'm not sure. I saw some pictures of me when I was 33 years old recently. I wouldn't mind that. <laughs> that, that wouldn't be... <laughs> I'd like to trans, turn the switch and go back to there right now. It would, you probably wouldn't recognize me. But it'll have different physical properties. We'll be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. It will be physical though. And we won't just live on in the hearts of our loved ones. I hope I do live on in the hearts of my loved ones. I hope I live the kind of life, and I know you do too, 
that you live the kind of life on this earth that when you're gone, people are actually going to miss you? I'd like to live that kind of life. I would like to live on in the hearts of my loved ones, but that's not what gives me confidence because I know I'm going to live on in a resurrection body forever because of what Jesus did. Again, I'll talk about that in just a minute. Bork said that it wouldn't bother him at all if they found the body of Jesus. Well, it bothered me. It would bother me greatly. Now, every now and then they claim to have. And have you ever noticed just a couple weeks, two, three, four weeks later, a month later, it all turns out to be fraud? In fact, the Israeli government sometimes prosecutes people because archaeological fraud is, in Israel is like a game violation in Wyoming. It's like, it's like death penalty kind of stuff. <laughs> you would be better off to do harm to a human being in Wyoming than to, to an animal. And you better you can do a lot of stuff in Israel, but don't commit archaeological fraud in Israel. Have you ever noticed they're always fraudulent? And the report of the fraud is typical. It's on page 10, whether it's the, the headline, they found the body of Jesus recently on Yahoo. Now it's been a few weeks, and you haven't seen the refutation, but it's out there. It would bother me greatly if they found the body of Jesus, but they're not going to. If they found the body of Jesus, I'm hanging it up. You may as well do. If they really find it, but they're not going to. If they found the body of Jesus, we'd still be dead in our trespasses and sins, and we'd be in big trouble, but they're not going to. The truth is that Jesus did rise from the grave. The tomb was empty. He validated that he was indeed who he said he was. And when we place our faith in him, we place our faith in a worthy object. I'm going to tell you something. If you're a thinking person at all, you've thought about your eternal destiny. And I hope you can say with me this morning that I know in whom I have believed. And I'm confident that he is able to guard that which I've entrusted to him until that day. And that person is Jesus Christ. It's not me. So many people are trusting in themselves, in their own goodness. It's not going to get it done. None of us can be good enough. I've only ever tried to give the gospel to a drunk person once. It happened on a Sunday night. It was over at the other campus. The place was completely packed. A person who was inebriated came in, and I don't know why, but he got set right next to the podium. Sat on the floor right there. And I remember I was preaching on David, and he was amen in it left and right, but he was amen in the wrong things. And finally, finally I asked a couple guys, would you, would you maybe wait outside with this fellow so we could continue on with the class? And after class was over, I went and talked to him in my office, and I sat down with him. And I said, I was going to be pretty cool about this, and I'm going to give this guy the gospel. It'll be a great story that I can tell someday, a great illustration of how I gave the gospel to a guy who came drunk and lost, and he left with salvation. <laughs> well, some of you know the story because you were there that night. It didn't work out that way. So I started off by trying to take him down the Romans road. You know what I'm talking about? And I, and I said, hey, listen, have you ever done anything that you consider to be sinful? No. Nope. <laughs> have you ever done anything that disappointed you or any of your friends? No. Nope. I was exasperated. I said, well, you're drunk right now, right? Yep. I said, but you don't consider that to be wrong. No. I said, well, you just came drunk to a Bible study and interrupted the whole Bible study. You didn't think that maybe disappointed God or any yourself? Nope. So I had to I stopped and realize you can't give the gospel to a drunk person. But outside of him... <laughs> I've never run into anybody when I talk to them about their own personal life that will say, no, I've never done anything wrong. I have. I'm not going to start listening to it for you. We're out of time. Otherwise, I might. <laughs> no. 
And those things that we've done wrong have consequences. In fact, the Bible tells us that we were born spiritually dead because of associating with Adam's sin. And some people say, well, I don't like that. How could I be born dead because of what somebody else did? But I've got to tell you, after your birth, you've done a few things wrong too, right? Unless you're drunk this morning, don't raise your hand, please. <laughs> we have no ability to save ourselves. And God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus came to do something about the sin problem. For by grace we have been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. Listen carefully. Not a result of works, lest any man should boast. Paul says over in his letter to Titus, it's not by works of righteousness which we've done. There's one work of righteousness that gets you to heaven, and it's nothing you've done, it's nothing anybody else has done other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was his work of righteousness. And on that cross that we studied last week, in those, those incredible hours between 12 o'clock and 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the wrath of God was poured out upon our Savior, and he was judged for every sin that's ever been committed. Yes, he was judged for David's adultery, Moses' murder. Paul's persecution of Christians. And whatever it is that you've done that you think is unforgivable. There's nothing that's unforgivable. The wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross for that sin too. Don't make the mistake of trying to earn your way to heaven. It cannot be done. Jesus Christ himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now the door is open. Some people say Christian, Christianity is exclusivistic. Well, yeah, it is. There's only one way in, but the door's open for everybody. Anybody. Come one, come all. Anybody can come. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are or how poor you are or how healthy you are or how sick you are or how sinful you've been or how good you've been. Some of the people that have the hardest time with salvation are the ones that have been relatively good. The people who have had a real rough life, they're the first ones to come. As soon as they hear an offer that they can have salvation, apart from any of their own righteousness. Now, I'm not saying that work is a four-letter word in Christianity. Of course, we work after salvation in, as a response to our love for God. But I'm talking about for salvation right now, for the, for the deliverance from that eternal penalty of sin. It's yours right here, right now, on this resurrection Sunday morning. What a, I can't think of a better day to have another birthday, to be born again. If you're getting nervous, don't. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or raise your hand, any of that kind of stuff. This is a private matter between you and God. Have you ever personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life? And it may go something just like, as simple as something like this. Father, I realize I can't save myself. He reads your thoughts. I realize I can't save myself. And I also believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And I am trusting him right now, apart from myself, to forgive those sins and to give me eternal life. Something like that. Now say it in your own words. He reads your thoughts, but that's the gist of it. Faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. It's not just faith. I saw a children's movie several years back. And the whole idea was faith, but it was almost faith in faith. No, faith in the proper object. The only object that is worthy to save that can do it is Jesus Christ. The plain fact of history of history is that the tomb was empty. The
The resurrected Jesus was seen by over 500 people. And Paul records that at a time when the people, could, when that statement could have been verified. The Apostle Paul went from being a persecutor of Christians to a Christian persecuted for Christ after seeing the resurrected Jesus Christ. James, the half-brother of Jesus, went from being a skeptic, an unbelieving skeptic, to a martyr for Jesus Christ. Peter, who went from denying that he even knew Jesus, died for Jesus, and to the last minute asserted that he had seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus happened. It's an historical fact. And we all have to come face to face with that fact someday and do something with it. Now, what are you going to do with it today? If you've never trusted Jesus Christ, I implore you, consider him today. I don't care what your age is. You don't know how long you've got on this earth. If you've never trusted him, consider it. Nobody can make you. Nobody can force you. Nobody can coerce you. This is strictly between you and God. It's there for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. And for those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ by grace through faith, no merit of our own, we face this resurrection Sunday with conviction and realize that we have been given literally a new lease on life. And we've been given time on this earth. And that time should be spent wisely in service for Jesus Christ, not to pay him back, but because we love him.